Good morning. I was very encouraged last week with the example of Joseph. Um, I think Rick uh, emphasized for us that um, you can be a nobody, but uh, somebody for the Lord. And uh, Joseph was one who provided a home for his creator. That was very profound. Um, Each life has a story to tell. The life of Simeon doesn't cover much, uh, cover much in Scripture in Luke chapter 2, but uh, we have some valuable lessons to learn from the life of Simeon, very precious lessons. Just to bring us um, into the proper setting, we're going to turn the clock back a few years. We finished with, um, uh, with Joseph, and we're now going back to when Joseph and Mary come to the temple to present the Lord Jesus to the Lord. It was a, it was a um, requirement from the book of Leviticus, chapter 12, that a uh, young uh, infant male be circumcised the eighth day, and a woman, after uh, purification, uh, was to bring her child uh, for sacrifice, for um, presentation uh, to the Lord, a sacrifice of... Um, a bull or a calf, if the family could afford it. In the case of Joseph and Mary, a turtle dove uh, or a pigeon. So that's uh, that's where we are this morning. Uh, let's start in Luke 2 and verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Three keys to appreciating the life and character of the man Simeon are that he was just and devout. That is, he was, um, he reverenced the Lord. Second, the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon for service. And the third, the Word of God dwelt richly in Simeon. We read in verse 25 that Simeon was just and devout. Who's offering the evaluation here? Who's making the estimation? The Lord God is. It's not Simeon saying, I am just and devout. It's not fellow sinners saying, uh, we think Simeon's uh, pretty just and devout. It's the Lord God himself. Simeon was just and devout. Ultimately, or actually from first to last, the Lord's estimation alone is the one that counts. And so when we hear these words about Simeon, we're, uh, we're recognizing that here's a man who's worthy of our imitation. We can learn some lessons from 
the life of Simeon. What does it mean, devout? What does it mean, just? A synonym, a like word for just, is the word righteous. And we find in Scripture at least four aspects of righteousness. One is the righteousness of God. It's one of his unchanging attributes. God is uncompromisingly, unapologetically, always doing what is right. We'll never find fault and say, uh, the Lord could have done that better or the Lord could have done that more justly. Instead, he is righteous in himself. And God cannot look favorably on sin in any of its color or shapes or forms. We may excuse it. God cannot because he is righteous. A second aspect of righteousness is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness was uh, practiced by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Simeon's time. Some plead ignorance when it comes to God's righteousness, and they seek to establish their own. They, they want to do what is right in their own eyes, and uh, whether they keep that or not, how well they keep that is, um, is not important. God has a comment on self-righteousness, and he says in Romans 3, he says, there is none righteous. No, not one. He summarizes the human condition, and he looks across the face of the earth at uh, six billion people, and he says, there's none righteous. You may try. You may attempt your own righteousness, and God says of that in, uh, through his uh, prophet Isaiah that we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We try to offer up like Cain did. We uh, offer up the work of our hands thinking that it's more acceptable, that it's uh, suitable to God. And God says uh, not only is it not acceptable, but your thinking that it was acceptable is uh, an affront. It's an offense to God. It's a filthy rag. It's not even a clean rag. It's filthy. A third aspect of righteousness is the righteousness that comes from God. There is a righteousness that God credits or imputes to the believer. And we read about that also in Romans 3. By the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. How is this righteousness imparted to the sinner? Simply through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's economy. That's God's dealings with man. He credits the sinner's account with righteousness if that sinner will believe. If Abraham, uh, in Romans 4, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Here's the righteousness from God. It is, uh, it is credited to the, the sinner upon his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is that righteousness of God in the believer's life, that practical righteousness. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, pursue righteousness. 
not the, uh, the righteousness through faith, but a, a righteousness that's an outworking of that faith. And uh, made in not just doing things right, but doing the right things. The righteousness of God in the believer's life. In that Simeon was just or righteous, he possessed that righteousness from God and he showed God working righteousness in his daily life. Simeon was just. Simeon was something that we uh, can hold before the, um, the crowds of religious people and say that, uh, that he had the righteousness of God. But he was also devout. And uh, the word devout, we could translate simply to reverent. And what does reverent mean? Reverent means both love and fear of God together. Simeon loved the Lord and he feared the Lord. He was devout. He was uh, reverencing the Lord. Uh, someone says, I fear God, but I don't love him. And another person says, well, I love God, but I don't fear him. Simeon could say, I love God and I fear him. How can a person both love and fear the Lord? It's something that I wrestled with for a long time. And uh, as, um, as I was thinking about uh, trains, the, the, uh, the thought finally gelled. It finally made sense that um, sometimes when I'm running... In the neighborhood, I, I get stopped at the railroad tracks by a passing train. And I've uh, been bold or foolish enough to, to get up close to the passing train, 10 or 15 feet, not that close. I don't want to make the engineer nervous. Um, but uh, I do that because I'm impressed with the mass of steel that's rolling down those tracks. I'm awed by the noise the reverberation in my chest as that, as that train is thundering down the, the tracks. There's power in that train. And so uh, I'm admiring, uh, fearing really that, that train as it, uh, as it passes. But I also appreciate trains. I don't just uh, fear them, but uh, I realize that there is a great utility in trains. Recently, uh, I went into our shop, in our engine shop, and there was a different-looking tra- uh, engine in there, and one of our big uh, mechanics uh, was close by, and I said, uh, Carl, what, what's that? And he said, oh, that's an Amtrak engine. That's a diesel engine. And I said, but there's a generator on the back of it. What's that all about? And uh, Carl said, well, uh, the engine doesn't drive the wheels, the engine drives the generator, and the generator produces electricity, and the electricity goes to, the, uh, to a gigantic electric motor, and that motor drives the, the locomotive's wheels. And I, I thought, wow, Carl, you know, tell me more about this. I was, uh, I was very interested in the operation of this engine, and uh, Carl could tell me all the particulars. And I don't just, I'm not just fascinated by the inner workings of this train, but I enjoy where that train takes me. Um, sorry, Dave's not here. Uh, Fifteen years or so ago, uh, Dave and I took an Amtrak train to Sacramento to do what? Visit the train museum. <laughs> it was great. 
uh, if you have um, if you have a ten year old fellow or uh, thereabout, it's a it's a fun diversion. Get on the train in the morning, go down, uh, do the museum, and then then ride the train back. So I I fear trains. I have a very healthy um, uh, fear of of trains, but I also enjoy them. I appreciate them, and I hope that allows you helps you to see how Simeon could fear the Lord in a much more profound way. He feared God. And yet he loved the Lord. He reverenced the Lord. Because Simeon was just and because he was devout, the Holy Spirit found a ready vessel which he could use to accomplish his work. That's our second point. Simeon was just and devout, and the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. We read also in verse 25. What are the conditions for filling by the Holy Spirit? It's, um, it's encouraging. It's, um, it's a big encouragement to the speaker when in the class before uh, this issue was, was raised and uh, uh, you saints talked about the filling of the Lord, the filling by his spirit and some of the qualifications, the conditions of filling. And these conditions are timeless. They, they are as true in the Old Testament as in the New as true today. A first condition for this filling is yieldedness. And we talked about that this morning. Romans 6, uh, in Romans 6, Paul says, and do not present or yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present or yield your members to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The Holy Spirit will not use a believer who resists him. A believer must yield, surrender is a key word, must surrender uh, his abilities, his capacities, his mind, his body for the, for the Holy Spirit's use in order for that, in order for the Holy Spirit to use him for his service. A second condition for Holy Spirit filling is obedience and confession. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, do not grieve the Spirit of God. How do we grieve the Spirit of God? We uh, disobey Him. And it brings Him grief. And then we're at a fellowship with the Lord that uh, that sweet fellowship is broken and uh, the Holy Spirit cannot use us. So it's important for us to Quickly confess sin. Don't harbor it. Don't save it up in bunches uh, to confess at the end of the day or the end of the week. But um, confess it the moment that it becomes apparent to us that we have uh, broken God's commandment. Sin hinders the work and limits the power of the Holy Spirit and confession restores that sweet fellowship. It brings fresh yieldedness, fresh surrender with it and a capacity for usefulness and service. Uh, third condition to the Holy Spirit's filling is dependence. Paul told the Galatians, he said, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. This carries the idea of um, reliance on the Spirit for His leading, His strength, for His doing through us what only the Holy Spirit can do. 
there are uh, commands in the, in the scripture. None of them are grievous, but uh, they are quite impossible for me to do in the flesh, for me to do um, by my own design. And yet God is, is fully capable of doing those through me. And it's when I rely on him, I walk in his spirit, that he's able to accomplish these things. We believe that in Simeon, the Holy Spirit found yieldedness. He found a living sacrifice. The Holy Spirit found quick confession. And in Simeon, the Holy Spirit found dependence on him. And so the Holy Spirit could use Simeon for his service. What was the Holy Spirit's work in Simeon? We find, uh, we find three things that the Holy Spirit did in Simeon's life. First of all, he revealed in verse 26 to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. We have to enter into Simeon's thinking for a moment to realize how exciting that really is, that as he lived day to day, each morning could bring that special time when he would meet the Lord's chosen, the Lord's Messiah. How would he recognize him? He was promised 400 years previous, well, and uh, 700 years previous, and uh, 4,000 years previous, and you're telling me that I'm, I'm going to see him in my lifetime? The scriptures had been silent for 400 years. Malachi had, had talked about how the people of Israel had robbed God of what was rightly his. He could have ended the scripture, the prophecy in scripture on that note because Israel was so far from God. But he said that in a coming day, the son of righteousness would come with healing in his wings. And so uh, Simeon was looking forward to that day. What an honor, what a privilege for the Holy Spirit to tell Simeon, you're not going to die until you have seen the Lord's Christ the one whom the Lord has, has promised for thousands of years. The psalmist said, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show him his covenant. The secret of the Lord was with Simeon. Simeon's meeting of the Messiah would be a dramatic moment in his personal history and in the history of the nation. A second work the Holy Spirit did was in verse 27. Uh, he led Simeon to the temple. It says that he came by the Spirit into the temple. Well, Simeon needed the Lord's leading because uh, there were perhaps a multitude of people in the temple and perhaps uh, more than one set of parents had um, come with their child to, to present that child to the Lord. There was no procession of Pharisees and Sadducees who marched ahead of the Lord Jesus announcing his birth, announcing his entrance into the temple. And besides that, in Isaiah 53, we read that there is no beauty in the Lord that we should, 
desire him. He was plain. He was, um, he was common looking. And so there was nothing physical in this child, in this baby, that would identify him as the Messiah. So as excited as Simeon was to hear that this is a day, he needed the Lord's, uh, the Holy Spirit's leading to, to show him which one is the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit did that. He brought him into the temple. And the third work was, as we will see in the verses following, that uh, he inspired Simeon's worship in verses uh, 29 through 32, and then uh, his prophecy in verses 35, uh, 33 through 35. What application can we make as believers in the year 2010? Simeon came by the Spirit into the temple. What have you done in your lifetime by the Spirit? By the Spirit's leading, by the Spirit's strength. Obeying the Lord in those things that I cannot do myself, but I can do by God's grace, by His enabling. What is it that we'll do today by the Spirit? Are you yielded? Are you able to say with the Lord Jesus in Luke 22, not my will, but thine be done. Total surrender. Lord, I'm yours. Do whatever you please. Be it great or small. I'm, I'm ready. Second, do you keep short accounts with God? John told uh, his readers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you have you worn that verse out? And then thirdly, are you dependent on the Holy Spirit? Zechariah wrote, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Are you depending on the Holy Spirit for his strength? Because Simeon was just and devout, the Holy Spirit found a ready vessel. He was upon Simeon. What we'd like to do is to make an association here, and you'll need to follow with me closely, because I want to show you, I want to prove to you that because the Holy Spirit filled Simeon, that the Word of God dwelt in him richly. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And verse 18. Paul writes... Ephesians 5.18, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then uh, Paul begins his uh, instruction to wives in verse 22 and husbands in verse 25. And you see the flow of, uh, of Paul's instruction to the Ephesians. We turn over to the Colossians, letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, 
and verse 16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then uh, he starts with instruction to wives in verse 18 and uh, fathers in verse 21. So you see identical uh, flow of, of thought here that Paul is giving to the Ephesians and the Colossians. But he says in one case to be filled with the Holy Spirit and in the second case, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I propose that um, they were the same in Simeon's life, that because he was filled with the Spirit, we would expect that the word of Christ would dwell richly in him as well. Paul equates the two together. So let's look at Simeon's waiting and worshiping and prophecy and see if this is indeed so, that uh, that Simeon is filled with the word of Christ. It's dwelling in him richly. We're going to look at um, types of the Lord Jesus and trace those back to the Old Testament, particularly to prophecy and particularly to the book of Isaiah and see that, yes, indeed, this prophecy of Isaiah was, uh, was dwelling uh, richly. It was, um, it was uh, overflowing in the life of Simeon. He carried it around with him. The Holy Spirit, yes, but the word of the Holy Spirit as well was, um, was flourishing in him. And the first that we'd like to look at is back in uh, Luke chapter 2. And verse 25, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation of Israel, it's capitalized. And so immediately uh, our antennas go up. We're not talking about just uh, comfort or encouragement, but we're talking about a person, the consolation of Israel. Who might that be? Well, obviously it's the Lord Jesus because that's uh, whom the Holy Spirit had promised uh, Simeon would see. And so if we turn back to Isaiah 25, we read of this comfort of the nation of Israel, Isaiah 25 and verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it shall be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The words of Isaiah are filled with comfort to the Lord's people. They had endured much. Um, certainly they had uh, drawn a lot of uh, discipline upon themselves as a nation. But uh, the Lord said there, was, there would be a day, there would be coming a day when the discipline would be over and that he would 
dwell among his people, he would bring them into blessing. And this was the consolation for which uh, Simeon waited. And he could look back to the book of Isaiah with hope and confidence that this is something the Lord promised. And uh, he was privileged to observe the consolation of Israel uh, appearing as, a, as an infant, Lord Jesus. What a comfort to Israel to hear this news, to realize that it was to be accomplished in the Lord Jesus. And a, uh, a comfort to an Israelite in particular, that Simeon and Anna, who appears in Luke chapter 2 after. There's my train. Power and utility. Should have timed it better. (laughs) What a comfort to Simeon and Anna. Anna spoke to others who waited for the redemption in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus. Simeon had expectation. He had confidence. He had excitement as he anticipated meeting the Messiah. The consolation of Israel. Are we as excited about meeting the consolation of the church? The church has proven itself to be very liberal and self-centered and forgetful of the Lord and His sacrifice. And we labor under the, uh, the sorrow of people who are supposed to be representing the Lord and instead uh, helping themselves. What a comfort it will be to see the Lord Jesus in, in the clouds as we meet Him in the air. When all the tears, all our tears will be wiped away, tears of labor, tears of reproach, tears of failure. Are you waiting for him? Are you expectant? Are you confident? Have you taken the promises of the Lord's return and made them your own? Do you carry those with you through the day? Do you start your day saying this could be it? What characterizes waiting Purity, for one, I want to, to be pure. I want to be ready when the Lord returns. I don't want to be caught in the middle of a grievance or an argument and to, uh, to have that be the way that I, I meet the Lord. It means putting aside distractions in life. What are the things that, uh, that tend to distract you from the Lord's return? Entertainment? Entertainment's fine, but uh, if it's a distraction, we need to, uh, to realize that. Are you waiting for the consolation of the church, the Lord Jesus? There's a second reference to the Lord Jesus. You want to keep a finger there in Isaiah, but uh, back in Luke chapter 2. And verse 29, 
Simeon said, Lord, you're now, uh, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. What did uh, Simeon's eyes see? Saw Jesus. Saw this infant. I can say it, but uh, if you're a dad or a mom, you can say it with much more impact. You hold a 33-year-old baby, a month-old baby in your arms, and you look into the eyes of that infant and you see capacity, you see capabilities for evil or for good. I'm talking about uh, our, our children. We see uh, a human being who can make an impact in the world for evil or for good whether they're in politics or in business or uh, they, uh, they labor for the Lord's church. They're filled with capacity. They're filled with potential. What did Simeon see in the eyes of the Lord Jesus? He saw salvation. His Savior. He could call Him His salvation. Because the prophet Isaiah had done so 700 years previous. Turn, uh, turn back to Isaiah 49. We're trying to tap into the majesty of the Lord um, prophesied in the book of Isaiah. It's, um, it's beautiful. It's, uh, Isaiah has a way of, of expressing these truths in, uh, in ways it seems no other prophet can. And in verse uh, 6 of Isaiah 49, he says, um, indeed, he says, the Lord says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. At the end of verse 6, you should be my salvation. Capital Y, O-U, should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. The servant of the Lord, his Messiah, would be salvation. We tend to complicate things. We build a system of do's and don'ts, and religions are, are built on, on rules and regulations. God says that it's not salvation. He says salvation is relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's a person. The Lord Jesus could say boldly and unashamedly, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not, you obey my commands and you'll get close, or, or uh, you... Uh, you do what I say and you'll get to heaven? No. Heaven, salvation, is through relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that's, uh, that's so profound for Simeon to, uh, to exclaim, to declare, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your Messiah, your Savior, the Savior that you have uh, provided for me, a sinner. Simeon had seen the self-righteous attempts of the Pharisees, the aimless conduct received by tradition from their fathers. 
Simeon had witnessed something of the system of animal sacrifices, which uh, couldn't take away sins, but they were a reminder year by year of sins. In them, he did not see salvation. It was in the Lord Jesus, in this infant Christ that he saw. We need to be careful not to intellectualize faith, not to run it through our minds and try to, uh, to complicate it, try to explain it. Salvation is in the Lord Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And uh, let's keep it simple. Not only was this infant the consolation of Israel and the salvation of sinners, but he was a light to the Gentiles back in Luke chapter 2 and verse 32. Uh, verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. This, uh, again, was um, from that same verse that we read in Isaiah 49, verse 6. Indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. The Lord is um, arguing here. He's saying, you think it's a small thing for, for me to bring salvation to the Jews. As difficult, as stubborn, as hard-hearted and stiff-necked as Israel was, uh, you think it's a small thing for me to, to bring salvation to the Jews? I'll bring it not just to the Jews, but to all the earth. Precious few of us would ever sing the wondrous love of Jesus if he had restricted salvation to the Jews. Instead, he has given a light to the Gentiles. Hallelujah. We have that available to us. A light to the Gentiles. We who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And salvation to the ends of the earth. There's no tribe so far away that the light, uh, this light of the Gentiles cannot be shown, cannot be enjoyed. The Lord was the glory of his people. A uh, fourth thing we read in uh, Luke 2, verse 32, in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 19, Isaiah proclaims, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor your brightness, nor uh, for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and God your glory. Israel would no longer be despised among the nations. But uh, finally, their Messiah had arrived. He would take away their reproach from uh, among those who had, um, had warred against Israel. Israel would, be, would find their boasting in this one Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And then finally, in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 34... 
Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. We read in um, Isaiah 8.14, He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. The Lord Jesus would be a stone of stumbling to uh, religious people like the Pharisees. He said in Matthew 21, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. There are two possibilities with the Lord Jesus. There's no middle of the road with him. He is the great divider of mankind. And he splits mankind into those who will fall irrecoverably in judgment and those who will live with him in heaven for eternity. John uh, wrote, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He is the great divider. Do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? There's no middle ground. You either know him or you don't. You will either be subject to falling and his judgment or to rising up in, uh, in glory with him. In review of Simeon's life, we see that he treasured God's promises in his heart. The consolation of Israel. He had, um, he had taken those promises and made them his own. Simeon drew on God's word for his worship. We see in verses 29 through 32, it's, uh, it's full of references to, uh, to the Lord Jesus from the book of Isaiah. And then we see that he relied on it for his prophecy, verses 35, uh, 33 through 35. In conclusion, in God's reckoning, Simeon was just and devout. He was righteous and reverent. What words characterize your life? If the Lord were to boil them down to uh, a handful of words, how would he characterize? What would he say about you? The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. What work are you doing in cooperation with the Holy Spirit by his leading and by his strength? What will you do today by the Holy Spirit? And then finally, the word of Christ dwelt richly in Simeon. What kind of expression does the word find in your life? Let's pray. We praise you, Lord, as the one who is powerful and, uh, and loving. We find rightfully both fear and love as we explore your word, as we see in the life of Simeon. And uh, we thank you for examples like Simeon. Pray for our group this morning, Lord, that uh, for us who have not surrendered our lives for service to you, that we would do so today, realizing that your Holy Spirit is looking for such men and women. And uh, you can use none other than, than him who is yielded to you. We pray, Lord, that the word might dwell richly in us as, um, as we are filled with your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your rich salvation 
and for the prospect of seeing the consolation of your church, perhaps today. Amen.